Okay, the second Bible reading tonight is from the book of Jonah, chapter 3, and we're going to start at verse 1. Uh, you can follow along on the screen, but for those that want to use a pew Bible, it's on page 898. So chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, He rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. This is the word of the Lord. Okay. Um, my name is uh, Nello Barry. Actually, it's not my full name. It's not my full name. My full name is Nello Rinaldo Mario Tiziano Barbieri. Okay, good Scottish name. <laughs> funny thing about names, isn't it, eh? Um, words. It's, it's, it's funny how words, phrases, can, can mean different things. Uh, to different, same phrase, but can mean different things. Like, I don't know if you know the, the Scottish name for a church... Anyone know the Scottish name for a church? Kirk. Now, the first time I heard that, I was down in Launceston, and I would just started work there, and they referred to the Kirk. Right? Now, I figured, Captain, <laughs> Kirk. And I, I've just found a whole church. It's in the Star Trek. More than that, they referred to the Kirk session. Mm. I'll let you ponder why that might be funny. Um... For those who don't know, a session is when a group of people gather around and smoke marijuana. All right, so the Kirk session. Hmm. And so words can mean something, but mean something different to other people. Here's a phrase that has had different meanings at times. Who knows? It can mean different things in different contexts, can't it? Like I heard uh, a Demons fan say, as in Melbourne Demons, Melbourne Football Club, go, who knows, they might win a game this year. That's kind of hope, isn't it? Right? Hopefulness. I heard another person say, not so long ago, reflecting on someone who had done something bad to them. Who knows, they just might get what's coming to them. That's kind of frustration, isn't it? Anger, almost. I think the saddest one I've ever heard was after I conducted a funeral. I was talking, as you do, with people around Nibblies. 
And the person came up to me and said, who knows, maybe they'll be with God. That's not quite so funny, that one, is it? But there's a sense of, I wish, I hope, who, who could know, almost an expression of hoping uh, against hope. And it's that use of the phrase, who knows, we, we saw in our Bible reading. I, I wonder if you picked it. The king of Nineveh uses it in chapter 3, verse 9. We're going to look at that again in a minute. He actually says to his fellow Ninevites, the people in the city, who knows, God might turn from his fierce anger towards us and maybe, just maybe, hope against hope, we mightn't perish. Because the king doesn't actually really know how God's going to act. So he's hoping. He's taken a punt. Who knows? Who knows? There's a vague chance God might change his mind. Who knows comes at a really crucial point in our story in Jonah. First thing we're told in this chapter, have a look at it. Uh, please uh, have Bibles. I actually don't know what page reference it's on. It is on 8-something. Yeah, that's it, 968. Um, it'd be good for you to follow with me. The first thing we're told in this passage is that the word of the Lord, that is God speaking, God calling, Jonah. And it's not the first time this has happened. Earlier in the book, uh, God said to Jonah, I want you to do something. He spoke to him and at that time he didn't listen. He ended up in a fish's stomach. Uh, this time he listens. And he gets up and he goes to Nineveh, which is exactly what God had told him to do. And he goes and he's got a message for the city of Nineveh. He gets up, he goes, he speaks to this city, he has a message for it. Now, the thing about Nineveh is that it's an incredibly large city for the time. Uh, chapter 4, verse 11, if you want to look it up, uh, says there's 120,000 people who live there. That's a big city by these standards in these days. Uh, the other thing we're told in chapter 3, the passage we looked at, verse 3, is there was such a large city that it took three days to visit it. I guess what that meant is to do all the kind of protocols that you would do when you visit a large city. Three days. And we're also told in verse 3 that it's an important city or more literally a great city to God. That is, Nineveh matters not because of its size, but because it's important to God. This place, this group of people are important to God. God is concerned about this city. And this is Jonah's message. 40 days and then you're done. 40 days, and then you're gone. 40 days, and you'll be destroyed. Simple sermon, really. Wouldn't have taken long to preach it, I wouldn't have thought. The main point of the sermon's pretty clear. You got 40 days to get things right with God. Otherwise, your curtains. God's a God of all the earth. God's seen you. Jonah says, God knows what you've done and God will judge you. 
and in 40 days, it's all going to burn. The thing about Nineveh, we don't know a lot about it, but if you were to just jump, don't do it now, but if you just jump a couple of books forward, a book called Nahum, it describes Nineveh as a city full of evil where people have to step over corpses to get anywhere. It was a city that enjoyed genocide. It was an evil place. I don't know if any of you have watched VeggieTales and about this story. And the way it describes it in the Vites is they're really, really bad because they slap each other with fish. Not really. These are truly evil people. And God says, enough's enough. The funny thing about this story, though, is if the message is clear, the response is even clearer, isn't it? Look at verse 5. We're told that the Ninevites believe God. In other words, this message that they hear, they believe it. They believe that it is actually from God. They believe it's true. Look at verse 8. We're told that news of that gets to the king, and the king issues a decree urgently calling everyone to call on God. Having heard God's word and accepted it, having believed it's from God, they are told to urgently call out and confess. And not just them, even the cattle. Even the animals are to recognize the situation they're in. They are to recognize that they are wrecked, that they are rebellious against God. And they've got to accept that situation. If they want to have any hope, any hope at all of having peace with God, they need to accept that what God says about their situation is true. And the king does. He takes off his royal robes, he throws them down, he puts sackcloth on, which is sack made into clothing. It's meant to represent the fact that, oh, I am so mournful over my state. And like I said, it's not just enough for the people to do it, the cows have got to do it. Imagine what it would look like if you were walking through the countryside in Nineveh. All the cattle, all the animals wearing sacks. And you wouldn't have laughed because it would have been really clear to you what this meant was, is we are really bad people. And we're sorry. We accept what God says about us is true. And we believe that the only way we can get right is what God says. And we confess with our mouth that there is only one king, God himself. We accept, believe, confess. But confessing isn't the only thing they do, is it? Verse 5 tells us, like I said, that they were mourning from the greatest to the least, that they fasted. The king himself humbles himself. He removes his clothes. He puts ash on his head to signify that indeed he recognizes he's a rebel against God. And then look at verse 8, please. They not only turn to God, but they turn from their sin. Do you see it? They not only go, God, you're right. I accept what you say about me is true. I believe you're real. But I'm going to stop doing the things that dishonor you, turn from my evil ways, and confess that you are right. I'm going to live a life of being sorry. Uh, the technical word we use for that is repentance, but 
sorry will do for us tonight. I'm going to say I'm sorry. I believe what you say and you're going to see it in my actions. Now they truly understood. And they knew they had to give an account to God. They knew that this God was holy and that they stood under him. More than that, they knew that he was the only one they could turn to. So the Ninevites, having had this bloke come in and speak to them, have real belief, real sorrow, real fear, and real change. And friends, that's what accepting our situation about ourselves and believing what God says and confessing to him that he is truly God is all about. Real sorrow, real change. Now, before turning back to the book of Jonah, I I just want to take a small diversion. Just a little one. You see, I actually think that most people, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, and, and, and I assume that whenever you grab a group of people like this together, there will be some that aren't followers of Jesus. But whether you are or not, I don't think we often grasp the gravity of what's being said here. I often don't think we grasp what the Ninevites got so clearly. You see, we forget that the God we deal with is the same God they dealt with and that his word to them is a word to us. You see, the Bible's picture is pretty clear. It's not all that difficult, really, when all's said and done. God made the world. Genesis 1.9 tells us, that God is the Lord who made heaven and earth and sea and dry land. He made you, he made me. More than that, that this God is holy. That is, he's pure. He's right. And he loves it when people do right things. But he hates it with vengeance when people do wrong things. In fact, he can't stand it when people rebel and live lives of rebellion. And because God is truly who he says he is, and because he cannot tolerate sinfulness, his judgment will be fierce and it will be hot because our God is a consuming fire. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus tonight, let me make your situation clear because the people of this church care about you. God is your maker. Whether you acknowledge him or not, he is. Uh, My sister is not a follower of Jesus. Uh, She says to me, no, Jesus rose for you because you believe it, but he didn't rise for me because I don't. I said, hun, because that's how I talk to my sister, hun, because Italians are affectionate. I go, let's just stop talking about Jesus. Let's just talk about the equator for a second. She looked at me strangely. The equator exists for me because I believe it, but the equator doesn't exist for you because you don't believe it. She looked at me strangely. And then I say, let's just say over lunch, we change each other's minds. So now it doesn't exist because you convinced me that it's not, but it does exist for you because I convinced you that it was. And we do this for the rest of the day, changing each other's minds, and it appears and disappears, and it appears and disappears. And I said, the only problem with that is the people who live on the equator. See what I'm saying? God is your God. 
The fact that you may not believe in him doesn't stop the fact that he's real and he's your God and he calls you to account. And he demands that you recognize him. And if you don't, you will be overthrown. It may not be 40 days, but it will happen. Because God is too pure to look upon people who rebel against him. And therefore, he's too pure to look upon you and to receive you in his presence. And if you continue to reject him, continue to ignore him, continue to live a life independently of him, that is, not taking any reference to God in your daily existence, to live God-less lives, then the day will come when you will be shut out for his presence forever. And you will face the fierce anger of God. And it is a sad thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. And that will be yours unless you come to God and say, I accept my situation and I'm sorry. If you want peace with God, you need to accept your situation. More than that, let me, let me urge you to remember what the Ninevites did when they heard about God. Remember what they did? They can teach us, can't they? Because the Ninevites showed us what being sorry really looks like. They show us what happens, what we ought to do when we hear God's word about our situation. They see that dealing with God is serious. They see themselves as guilty people. They see themselves as under his judgment. And so they see it, it is, it's a good thing to fear God. And it's an awful thing when we do wrong. And they grieve it. And they cry over the fact that they've dishonoured God. And they turn from their sinfulness. Now, having said that, I want you to come back to Jonah with me. I want you to imagine that you are in Nineveh. Just think about it. I don't know what they wear. They're wearing togas, whatever. And there they are. There you are. You're going about life in a self-contained way. You're marrying people. You're having children. You're rearing your children. You're going to work. You commit genocide. You're going about living life as a superpower in the era. And then, out of nowhere, this small man from a virtually unknown country slips into your city and he stands, he stands up in your marketplace and he roams around and he says, there is a God whom you don't know and you're responsible to him. And he says, 40 days and it's gone. And you believe. And you say, sorry. But as you sit there, you go, if there is such a thing as God and if he does punish sin, then I've got no hope. I know that now. And the king takes leadership, he clutches at straws, and in hope against hope, he utters the word in verse 9 where we started. Who knows? It's a desperate cry, isn't it? Who knows? Even if we are sorry, even if we throw sackcloth on, even if we cover ourselves with a ton of ash, who knows whether this God who is holy will truly forgive a person like me? Who knows? Who knows if this just and holy God will accept rebels? Who knows if he'll forgive sin? Who knows, having spoken his word against us, will he now listen to us when we say sorry? 
Who knows? If there's any way to turn back his destruction from us, who knows? And I want to let you in on a secret. Because there's one bloke in this story who does know. I wonder if you picked who he is yet. As the city cries out, who knows? Jonah knows. Jonah actually knows. And if you know something of the story of Jonah, you'll know what I mean. After all, Jonah had been really, really rebellious against God and cried out, God, please save me. And God had shown him mercy. God had saved him, given him his life back and made him useful again. Jonah knows. Flip over just one chapter, please. Chapter 4, verse 2. Look at what Jonah says. Lord, isn't this the reason why, isn't this what I said when I was still at home? That's why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Did you hear his words? I knew you were a gracious God. I knew you were merciful, slow to anger. I knew you would be abounding in love and not want to send disaster on these people. I knew, I knew, I knew. You see, the king might ask, who knows? And in his presence is a bloke who does know. Jonah knows. In fact, there's actually someone else who knows. Jonah knows... And if you're a follower of Jesus, you know. Jonah knows, and if you're a follower of Jesus, you know. Because if you're a follower of Jesus and you believe in him, you have a greater confidence than Jonah ever would have. For God's told us in the rest of the Bible, the rest of the Bible which Jonah points to, that he sent his one and only son into this world So that those people who accept their situation as being rebels against God and believe in that sent son would not have to be overtaken, would not have to perish, but actually have life. He said in his word that because of his great love towards us, he put his son forward to die in our place. He said in his word that he did that even for people who hate him and ignore him who are spiritually dead he said that that one great act of his son dying was enough to turn away his fierce anger towards sin and so if you're not a follower of jesus then i want to urge you tonight to stop wondering who knows because you can know You can know. And let me tell you, God delights to have mercy. He loves it. He's into mercy. He's into forgiveness in a big way. So if you accept what God says about your situation as someone who is a rebel against him, if you believe, not just intellectually, but trust that Jesus died as payment for your rebellion, And if you confess that he is truly God, then you can know. And you can know and you'll be accepted as his child. Now, Jesus actually said, I tell you the truth, he who believes has everlasting life. The reading we just had before the one on Jonah, these things are written 
that you might know that by believing in Jesus, you'll have life. The king of Nineveh might have been clutching at straws. Jonah knew he wasn't. I know he wasn't. And if you call out to Jesus, you won't be either. You see, friendship with God is possible. If you accept what he says about your situation, if you believe what his son did on a cross, and if you confess that he is truly your God, then there is no who knows for you. Now, I really don't know your circumstance tonight, to be quite honest. I know some of you, kind of. But God may have been dealing with you tonight. He may have been saying to you, tonight is enough. I want you to accept what I say about your situation, that you are indeed a rebel and in need of forgiveness. I want you to believe historically the truth of Jesus' death and resurrection as payment for your sin. And I want you to confess that tonight. He, he may be saying that to you. And if that is, I'm going to pray in a moment. And I'm going to pray really along those lines. It's as easy as, well, A, B, C. I'm going to pray that we accept God's truth about ourselves, that we believe in Jesus and that we confess. And if that is true of you, if that is something you want to do, then what I'm going to ask you to do is pray what, what I say. I'm going to leave a space for you to repeat it in your own head. You don't have to pray it aloud. And trust me, no one's going to ask you to stand up, let alone come down the front. We, we won't do that to you. We're not into that kind of stuff. But we are going to ask you to speak to God. And then afterwards, there's a little bit of paper. Have we got a, have we got a copy of that response card somewhere? There it is. There's a number of responses there. You can fill out any one of those. But I'm going to, I'm going to suggest that if you pray this prayer and mean it, you add a sixth box. And just draw it there. You might want to write something like, ABC is true of me tonight. Or I became friends with God tonight. Or I received God's mercy tonight. Or I prayed that prayer that the nutter at the front was suggesting I should pray tonight. You just put that down there. And we want to connect with you and help you grow. And help you to come to understand this great God who loves you so much. If you're already a follower of Jesus, then what I'm going to ask you to do is pray as well. It's a good opportunity to reflect and say, thank you, God, for all that you've done for me. And perhaps we can pray for those who don't. Does that sound right? Does that sound okay? So I'm going to pray. So whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, I'm going to ask you to bow your head. Uh, and even if you don't want to say anything at all, even if you're not at that place of, bowing, uh, of praying, I'm going to ask you to bow your head so no one feels like someone's looking at them. That might be a good thing as well. Let's pray. Dear God, Pray with me if you want to accept his gift. Dear God, I accept what you say about me is true. I am a sinner and I've rebelled against you. Maybe passively, maybe actively, but I have rebelled and I'm sorry. I believe that your son Jesus 
died to pay the penalty for my sin. I'm not worthy of it, but thank you. And I confess that you are my God, whom I love and worship and adore. Amen. Father God, you know what you want to do in this world. Father God, you know how you work in individual people's lives. And Lord God, if there are people here tonight who have come home, who have understood what you have said about them and believe what your son has done, Father God, may they know now what Jesus said is true. That if they believe, they can know that they have eternal life. And may the sense and weightiness of being a rebel fall from their lives and may they rejoice in knowing that you will receive them forevermore. And for those of us, dear God, who have been followers of Jesus, be it a short or a long time, may we continue to rejoice in great humility at the things that you have done. And in Jesus' name we pray.